Yeah, let's take our Bibles and turn to Genesis 39 again. <coughs> Genesis chapter 39. Genesis 39, let's just read <clears throat> verse 11. It says, And it came to pass about this time that Joseph went into the house to do his business, and there was none of the men of the house there within. And she caught him by his garment, saying, Lie with me. And he left his garment in her hand and fled, got him out. <clears throat> let's give me that time to the Lord in prayer. <coughs> Excuse me. Dear Lord and Heavenly Father, we thank you once more for the opportunity to come around your word. Uh, Lord, we pray that as we conclude chapter 39 now, that you would just uh, speak to our hearts through your word. I pray, Lord, that you would meet us where we're at this morning, that you would bless us, uh, refresh us through your word, challenge us this morning. And Lord, I pray that uh, we would leave singing your praises and giving all glory and honor unto your name. May you just empower me now through the Spirit. Give me wisdom, Lord, as I preach. And I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. And of course, in the first service, we uh, considered the, the temptation that Joseph faced in Potiphar's house, this uh, trial that went on for a period of time as the, the fiery darts of the wicked were hurled at Joseph, you know, in the form of Potiphar's wife constantly uh, propositioning him to sin with her, you know, propositioning him to commit adultery. And as we saw this morning, she was very brazen in her request. She was very forward daily asking him to do this, and yet daily Joseph refused. And we talked about this morning the fact that this resistance from Joseph to temptation, this resistance to sin, is truly remarkable when we consider the environment that he finds himself to be in. You know, far from home, far from all friends, all family, far from any godly influence, and yet daily Joseph is able to say no to temptation. And we talked about the secret to his victory. The secret was not in his willpower. The secret was in the fact that he had a right view of God and a right view of sin. Now, as we saw at the end of verse 9 where he says, How then can I do this great wickedness and sin against God? Because he had a right view of sin and he had a right view of God. And through all those years in Potiphar's house, surrounded by <coughs> ungodly examples, Joseph had maintained a relationship with God. He maintained a relationship with God, and it was this understanding of God, this focus on God that enabled Joseph to resist the temptation to sin. You know, of course, as we read this morning, Potiphar's wife, she wouldn't take no for an answer, would she? She didn't give up at the first attempt, the second, the third. She kept hounding Joseph until finally it all came to head one day when they were alone, in the house, as we just read there in verse 11, and it came to pass about this time that Joseph went to the house to do his business, and there was none of the men of the house there within. And she caught him by his garment, saying, Lie with me. And he left his garment in her hand and fled and got him out. Now here we see that Joseph, he's in the house merely going about his business. He's doing what his master expects him to do. But he's alone on this occasion, and Potiphar's wife sees an occasion to finally get her way. She grabs Joseph and she propositions him more aggressively than ever before. But once more, Joseph is resolved and he flees. He gets him 
out of there, leaving his garment behind. And you know, throughout this whole event, Joseph has maintained his integrity, hasn't he? Joseph has done everything right, maintained his honor, he's maintained his purity, maintained his character. It's all still intact. He's honored God in his actions. He's honored God by his response. And yet Joseph now is about to seemingly pay a terrible price for righteousness, isn't he? He's about to pay a terrible price for his stand for righteousness. And so we see, first of all here, Joseph is falsely accused. Joseph falsely accused. Look in verse 13. It says, And it came to pass when she saw that he left his garment in her hand and was fled forth. She called unto the men of her house and spake unto them, saying, See, he hath brought in an Hebrew unto us to mock us. He came in unto me to lie with me, and I cried with a loud voice. And it came to pass when he heard that I lifted up my voice and cried, that he left his garment with me and fled and got him out. You know, Potiphar's wife is once more rejected by Joseph. And now there is an immediate change that comes over her, you know, after this final rejection. There's a change, isn't there? There's a change in her attitude. You know, she thought that finally she was going to have her way with him. I mean, she got him alone. You know, there's no one else around. How could he resist? Finally, she was going to have her way. But Joseph, of course, resisted yet again. And more than that, this time Joseph has to wrestle free. He has to show how much he doesn't want her uh, to be with him, doesn't want to engage in this sin. He wrestles free of his garment, he leaves behind his garment, and he, he flees from her presence. You know, every time before this, Joseph had been able to graciously refuse her, hadn't he? You know, she'd propositioned him, she'd said, lie with me, and he was able to graciously say no and refuse and leave. You know, but this time, there was no way for him to just graciously resist, was there? to just graciously refuse. This time she grabbed hold of him. And so he physically had to free himself from her grasp and he physically leaves behind his coat in her hands as he flees from her presence. And you see, this time Potiphar's wife is more frustrated than ever, isn't she? She's frustrated. She's probably feeling more rejected than ever and now she's feeling humiliated as well. And her attitude towards Joseph now quickly changes from lust to being one of anger and a desire for revenge. The commentator Morris wrote this. <clears throat> At that point, the passionate desire of Potiphar's wife suddenly turned into the rage of a woman scorned. Knowing that her desire for Joseph was now completely impossible of fulfillment, her only thought was to humiliate him as deeply as possible for his rejection of her. Likewise, Butler writes this, Viciously, she sought great revenge on Joseph for his rejecting of her evil solicitations. Someone has said, Hell hath no fury like a woman scorned. That's exactly what happens here. You know, time and time again, he resisted graciously. This time, he can't resist graciously. And he flees from her presence, wrestles free and leaves. And now she's scorned and she is upset and she's full of anger and vengeance because Joseph has more bluntly than ever rejected her. And so she now seeks revenge and she does it by falsely accusing Joseph of rape. 
That's what she accuses him of here in verses 14 and 15. Just read it again. It says, <coughs> sorry, it says, that she called unto the men of her house and spake unto them, saying, See, he hath brought in an Hebrew unto us to mock us. He came in unto me to lie with me, and I cried with a loud voice. And it came to pass when he heard that I lifted up my voice and cried, that he left his garment with me and fled and got him out. She immediately calls out now, calls out to the servants. They hear her cry and they, they come running. And she begins now to spread her lie. And she starts out in verse 14 <clears throat> by, you know, basically diminishing who Joseph is and, and calling his honor, his integrity into question. Now, at the start of verse 14, it says that she called unto the men of her house and spake unto them, saying, See, he hath brought in an Hebrew to mock us, oh, sorry, unto us, to mock us. You can sense the disdain in her voice now, can't you? You know, she calls him a Hebrew brought in to mock them. She brings his honor, his reputation into question. She basically suggests that he was a threat unto them all and he should never have been brought into the house, let alone being given such authority within the house. And so she brings his, his honor, his integrity into question and then she lays this lie. This lie against him, these charges that he had tried to rape her. It says at the end of verse 14 there, <clears throat> excuse me, and he came in unto me to lie with me and I cried with a loud voice. <clears throat> she accuses him of trying to rape her. And she says it's only because I cried out with this loud voice that he fled. It's only because I, I sa said something, I yelled out that he fled. She basically turns everything around, doesn't she? She turns the whole story around and now Joseph is made to look like the guilty party. You know, and she's holding his garment as evidence of his sin, his indiscretion. And you know, this lie that she tells, it results in Joseph's name, his reputation being marred before his fellow servants. That's who she accuses him to, first of all, isn't it? The fellow servants. You know, the other slaves, she's called for them and she accuses him to them and she's, she's basically dragging his name through the mud. She's marring his reputation. You know, this is something that Joseph has spent years faithfully building up, hasn't he? Okay, by faithfully serving in Potiphar's house, demonstrating that godly character, that godly attitude, little by little, he's been elevated up to this position of authority by Potiphar. And he has this reputation, doesn't he? And it's one of honor. It's one of integrity. Whether the other servants like him or not, they probably didn't. They probably looked at him with disdain anyway. But he had a reputation of honor. They couldn't lay anything against him. But now as she accuses him before the other servants, she drags his reputation down, doesn't she? She mars his name with this false accusation, these slanderous lies. You know, this is something that, you know, Joseph has in common with our Lord, isn't it? You know, our Lord experienced the same thing when he was here on earth. In Matthew 26, when Christ stood before Caiaphas on trial, he was slandered. He was falsely accused. Just turn over there. <clears throat> Matthew 26. <clears throat> Matthew 26, we're starting verse 57. It says, And they that laid hold on Jesus led him away to Caiaphas, the high priest, where the scribes and the elders were assembled. 
And Peter followed him afar off unto the high priest's palace and went in and sat with the servants to see the end. Now the chief priests and elders and all the council sought false witness, witness against Jesus to put him to death, but found none. Yea, though many false witnesses came, yet they found none. At the last came two false witnesses. And they said, This fellow said, I am able to destroy the temple of God and to build it in three days. And the high priest arose and said unto him, Answerest thou nothing? What is it which these witnesses which these witness against thee? But Jesus held his peace. And the high priest answered and said unto him, I adjure thee by the living God that thou tell us whether thou be Christ, the Son of God. Jesus saith unto him, Thou hast said, Nevertheless I say unto you, Hereafter shall you see the Son of Man sitting on the right hand of power and coming in the clouds of heaven. And the high priest rent his clothes, saying, He hath spoken blasphemy. What further need have we of witness, witnesses? Behold, now ye have heard his blasphemy. What think ye? They answered and said, He is guilty of death. You know, Christ standing before Caiaphas, and what do they do? They go looking for false witnesses, don't they? False witnesses against him. To finally, they find these two to bring an accusation against the Lord. And of course, Christ was innocent of all accusations. And they knew he was innocent. That's why they had to search so hard for a false accusation to bring against him. So they could put him to death. So they could have him executed. They slandered the name of our Lord. And of course, it culminated, as we just read there in verse 65, they accused him of blasphemy. Blasphemy. You see, Christ was slandered, falsely accused, just as Joseph was here. And you know, the Lord tells us that we also will be slandered. We also, as believers, will suffer false accusations. Matthew chapter 5. <clears throat> Turn over there, Matthew chapter 5. Matthew 5, verse 11. It says, Blessed are ye when men shall revile you and persecute you and shall say all manner of evil against you falsely for my sake. Rejoice and be exceeding glad, for great is your reward in heaven, for so persecute they the prophets which were before you. Now Christ here in verse 11, he says, Blessed are ye when men shall revile you and persecute you and shall say all manner of evil against you falsely for my sake. Christ says we are blessed. We're blessed if we are reviled, if we are falsely accused for his sake, for righteousness, for standing up for what's right. Christ says we're blessed. If we've been faithful like Joseph was here, you know, faithful in honoring God and saying no to sin and standing up for righteousness, if we then are falsely accused, Christ says we're blessed. And indeed, as verse 12 says, we can rejoice and be exceeding glad. We can rejoice in that suffering. And beloved, that's the situation that Joseph finds himself to be in, isn't it? Joseph, as we saw this morning, has stood up against sin. He has repeatedly said no. He's done the right thing. He's done nothing wrong, but simply maintain a godly testimony. And now he has his reputation, his name dragged through the mud as he is falsely accused of gross wickedness. He is accused of rape. Falsely accused for righteousness' sake. Joseph suffered as Christ suffered, and as, as indeed we will suffer as believers as we stand up for the Lord. You know, verse 16 to 18, we see that not only does she accuse him to the other servants, but then she, she waits for Potiphar to come home, doesn't she? 
and she accuses him. She repeats the same accusations to him. Look in verse 16. It says, And she laid up his garment by her until his Lord came home. And she spake unto him according to these words, saying, The Hebrew servant which thou hast brought unto us came in unto me to mock me. And it came to pass that I lifted up my voice and cried that he left his garment with me and fled out. In verse 16 to 18, we see she now, she waits for Potiphar now to come home. She's sowed the seeds, okay? She's, she's tarnished his reputation before the servants. Hopefully now they'll support her story. I guess that's the idea there, isn't it? And now she waits for Potiphar to come home and she now repeats the accusations to him. You know, Joseph's fellow servants, they had no power to punish Joseph. But Potiphar certainly did, didn't he? Potiphar had the power to deal very harshly with Joseph. Not just because he's the, you know, the head of the home, but also because of his position in the Egyptian government. Captain of the guard. The executioner. He had the authority to deal with Joseph very harshly. And so accusing him before his fellow servants was about dragging down his reputation, destroying his name. This accusation to Potiphar, this is about destroying his life, isn't it? It's about destroying his life. Perhaps even seeing Joseph put to death, it seems like that is her end game here. That's her end goal. Under the law, the crime that Joseph was accused of was punishable by death. The commentator Butler writes this, The laws of the Egyptians were especially severe in their penalties for offences against women. One guilty of the crime of which Joseph was accused could expect punishment as severe as death in those days, especially if he was nothing but a slave, as Joseph was. And that's the point. He's nothing but a slave. He doesn't have any rights, any freedoms. And so the punishment was severe. And Potiphar's wife, she would have known this. Okay? She accuses him to Potiphar. She knows this. You see how her lust for Joseph has quickly changed into disdain and hatred to the point that she wants him put to death. She accuses him blatantly of rape and Potiphar, he would have been well within his rights to take Joseph out and to have him executed. You know, Potiphar's response is recorded for us in verse 19. It says, And it came to pass, when his master heard the words of his wife, which she spake unto him, saying, After this manner, did thy servant to me, that his wrath was kindled. We're told that his response to hearing the story from his wife is that his wrath was kindled. You know what's interesting here in the Word of God is that it doesn't say his wrath was kindled against Joseph. It's interesting. It doesn't say that his wrath was kindled against Joseph. Potiphar is angered by what he hears from his wife, but it doesn't seem that his anger is actually directed at Joseph. Indeed, from the punishment that he now inflicts upon Joseph, it would seem that he doesn't believe his wife's story at all. The commentator Barnhouse writes this, If Potiphar had really believed his wife, Joseph would have probably been tortured to death. Thus, putting Joseph in prison was almost an acquittal. But putting him in prison, it was almost like he was acquitting him of the crime. Another commentator wrote this, Potiphar could not in every respect have credited the story of his wife. For the punishment awarded in Egypt to the crime of which she accused him was far more severe than what Joseph received. So the point is, it seems clear that Potiphar doesn't 
he doesn't believe his wife's story. If he did, he would have dealt more harshly with Joseph. You know, perhaps he knew what his wife was like. You know, we talked about this morning that it seems like she's used to getting in her way and that perhaps she's done this before. You know, maybe he knew what his wife was like, but he certainly knew what Joseph was like, didn't he? He knew what Joseph was like. I mean, that's why he elevated him up to being in this position of power within his home because he'd seen the hand of the Lord upon him. He knew what Joseph was like and he knew Joseph wasn't capable of this. And that's why his wrath is kindled here. His wrath is kindled because he knows it's a lie, but he also knows he's going to lose a good servant because of it. He's going to lose Joseph, this one that he trusts so much with everything in in his house, this one who's done so much for him and for his house. He's going to lose him because of this accusation. You see, Potiphar knew he had no choice but to now punish Joseph. He didn't have a choice, did he? You know, whether Joseph was guilty or not, Potiphar could not take the word of a slave over his wife, could he? Couldn't do it. It would have been political suicide. He couldn't take the word of a slave over his own wife. And so no matter matter what, Joseph now has to be punished. You know, the interesting thing is that nowhere here in this story do we read of Joseph getting agitated. Nowhere here do we read of Joseph defending himself. You know, it must have pained him to listen as he was accused of such gross immorality. I mean, put yourself in his shoes and and hear someone accuse you of this, knowing full well what had actually taken place. It must have pained him to hear these accusations. And yet we don't read of Joseph here getting angry. We don't read of Joseph shouting. We don't read of Joseph defending himself. Instead, Joseph seemingly quietly, humbly listens as he is accused, and then he meekly accepts the punishment for a crime that he didn't commit. You know, once again, we see that Joseph is a reflection of our Savior, do we not? You know, Matthew chapter 27, we see as Christ stood before Pilate and was falsely accused, he answered nothing. Let's go over there. <clears throat> Matthew chapter 27 with me. <clears throat> Excuse me, Matthew chapter 27, verse 11, it says, And Jesus stood before the governor, and the governor asked him, saying, Art thou the king of the Jews? And Jesus said unto him, Thou sayest. And when he was accused of the chief priests and elders, he answered nothing. Then said Pilate unto him, Hearest thou not how many things they witness against thee? And he answered him to never a word, insomuch that the governor marveled greatly. And Christ is standing before Pilate, As Pilate listens to the accusations, he answers nothing. And Pilate even asks him, he says in verse 13, then Pilate said to him, Hearest thou not how many things they witnessed against thee? Don't you hear what they're saying, the false accusations? Well, what does Christ do? Does he get angry? Does he get agitated at the false accusations? Does he respond? No, Christ answers nothing. You know, Peter tells us that when Christ was reviled, he reviled not again. Just turn over there. 1 Peter 2. <clears throat> passage we know well, 1 Peter 2, verse 21. <clears throat> 1 Peter 2, verse 21 says, For even hereunto were ye called, because Christ also suffered for us, leaving us an example that ye should follow his steps. Who did no sin, neither was guile found in his mouth, 
But when he was reviled, reviled not again. When he suffered, he threatened not, but committed himself to him that judgeth righteously. You know, Peter tells us that when Christ was reviled, he reviled not again. He didn't respond. He didn't respond in anger. He didn't retaliate. Indeed, Peter tells us in verse 23 there, he says that this is what Christ did. He committed himself to him that judgeth righteously. This is why Christ kept his, his mouth quiet and said nothing. He committed himself to the hands of the Father. He committed himself into the hands of him that judgeth righteously. And that's what we see Peter, uh, Joseph sorry, do here as well. We see Joseph do the same thing. He's, he's falsely accused. And yet he humbly, meekly opens not his mouth. Instead, he commits himself into the hands of him that judgeth righteously. He commits his, his care into the hands of God. He trusts and understands that God is in control of this situation. God knows he's innocent. God knows that his conscience is clear. God knows that he did the right thing. You know, it wasn't fair. He's falsely accused, but Joseph here submits himself to the will of God and he trusts himself. He trusts that God knows best. You know, Joseph now having been falsely accused, he's taken and he's thrown into prison. And that's what we see secondly here. We see Joseph in prison. Go back there to Genesis 39. <clears throat> Genesis 39 and verse 20. It says, And Joseph's master took him and put him into the prison, a place where the king's prisoners were bound. And he was there in the prison. But the Lord was with Joseph, and he showed him mercy and gave him favor in the sight of the keeper of the prison. And the keeper of the prison committed to Joseph's hand all the prisoners that were in the prison. And whatsoever they did there, he was the doer of it. The keeper of the prison looked not to anything that was under his hand, because the Lord was with him, and that which he did, the Lord made it to prosper. You know, here we see the results of this slander, these false accusations. Joseph He's taken and he's put in prison. He now finds himself suffering for a crime that he did not commit. He was innocent of. You know, Joseph had done nothing but refuse to sin. That's why he's in prison, isn't it? He refused to sin. He stood up for righteousness. And now he's suffering as a criminal in prison. In verse 20, it tells us that he's taken and put in the prison where the king's prisoners were bound. It says, And Joseph's master took him and put him into the prison, a place where the king's prisoners were bound. And he was there in the prison. This tells us he's in a particular prison, okay? not just any prison. He's where the king's prisoners were bound. This is where the political prisoners were placed. And it was actually the prison, the prison sorry, that Potiphar was in charge of. If you go to chapter 40, verse 3, Chapter 40, verse 3, it says, And he put them in ward in the house of the captain of the guard into the prison, the place where Joseph was bound. Who's the captain of the guard? Chapter 39, verse 1, And Joseph was brought down to Egypt, and Potiphar, an officer of Pharaoh, captain of the guard. You see, the prison that he puts Joseph in is the prison that he's actually in charge of, that he's actually over, you know, he's the head of it all. It's the prison that's under his charge. But that doesn't mean that Joseph receives special treatment as he's put in prison here. Far from it, in Psalm 105, we actually read 
of his time in prison. Just turn over there, Psalm 105. Psalm 105 and verse 17. It says, He sent a man before them, even Joseph, who was sold for a servant, whose feet they hurt with fetters. He was laid in iron until the time that his word came, the word of the Lord tried him. The king sent and loosed him, even the ruler of the people, and let him go free. He made him lord over his house and ruler of, of all his substance. In verse 18 there it says, Whose feet hurt, they hurt with fetters, he was laid in iron. Describes for us his experience in jail. He didn't get special treatment just because he was in the prison under Potiphar's charge. He's in prison there and we're, we read that he was bound with chains. The, the psalmist describes the bruises on his feet from the shackles. You see, Joseph suffered in prison. He suffered for a crime he didn't commit. He suffered for righteousness. And you know, the New Testament tells us that we can all expect to suffer for living godly lives. Turn over to 2 Timothy 3. <clears throat> 2 Timothy 3. Verse 12. 2 Timothy 3 verse 12 says, Yea, and all that will live godly in Christ Jesus shall suffer persecution. You see, suffering, because we're living a godly life, because we're living righteously, is something that we can expect to happen. Suffering, persecution, for righteousness' sake, is something we can expect to happen. That's what the verse says, Yea, and all that will live godly in Christ Jesus shall suffer, it's a fact, shall suffer persecution in one form or another. Now, 1 John 3, verse 13, it says, Marvel not, my brethren, if the world hates you. We shouldn't marvel, we shouldn't be surprised that the world hates us. If the world doesn't hate us, something's wrong. The world should hate us, should dislike us for living a righteous life. You know, when therefore we are unjustly treated by men, when we suffer persecution in any form, it simply means that we are like Christ, doesn't it? It means that we're like our Lord and Savior. We're suffering as He suffered. And indeed, Peter tells us that if we suffer for righteousness' sake, we ought to be happy. 1 Peter 3 tells us that. Just turn over there, 1 Peter 3. First <clears throat> Peter 3, verse 14. It says, But, and if you suffer for righteousness' sake, happy are ye. And be not afraid of their terror, neither be troubled, but sanctify the Lord God in your hearts, and be ready always to give an answer to every man that asketh the reason of the hope that is in you with meekness and fear, having a good conscience, that whereas they speak evil of you, as of evildoers, they may be ashamed that falsely accuse your good conversation in Christ. For it is better, if the will of God be so, that you suffer for well-doing than for evil-doing. For Christ also hath once suffered for sins, the just for the unjust, who might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but quickened by the spirits. Now Peter, back in verse 14 there, he says, But, and if you suffer for righteousness' sake, happy are ye. If we suffer because we've stood up for righteousness, we rejoice, we give thanks, we are happy. You see, it's far better 
to suffer like Joseph did and and indeed like our Lord and Savior did, to suffer because we stood up for righteousness, than to fail to take a stand, lose our testimony, and bring reproach upon the name of Christ. Far better we suffer for doing right, for doing what the Lord wants us to do. And that's what we see Joseph do here, don't we? Joseph stood up for righteousness and now Joseph, not for the first time in his life, is suffering unjustly. He's been unjustly treated. He has had everything once again stripped away and he finds himself now lower than ever before, doesn't he? Now he is in prison, rotting away in an Egyptian jail. But you know, once more, what do we read in verse 21? Just go back there to Genesis 39. Verse 21, it says, But the Lord was with Joseph. There's those wonderful words again. We saw them at the start of the chapter when he was brought into Potiphar's house. But the Lord was with Joseph. Now we see it again in verse 21 as he's in prison. But the Lord was with Joseph. It's even now as he's in prison suffering for righteousness, for something he didn't do, God is with him. God had not forgotten him. God had not made a mistake. Joseph was exactly where God wanted him to be. You see, yet again, God had used the evil actions of others to accomplish his purpose in Joseph's life. You see, God knew what he was doing, didn't he? The prison was but a stepping stone to the palace. You know, Joseph had to go down into the prison to come up to the palace. It seems contrary, doesn't it? But that's what God knew had to take place. You know, did Joseph know this? Did Joseph fully understand what God was doing in his life? No. But he did know that God was in control. And he did know that God had promised that he was going to elevate him to a position of authority. He knew that because of the dreams. Genesis 35, uh, 37, sorry. Genesis 37, <clears throat> verse 5. It says, And Joseph dreamed a dream... And he told it his brethren, and they hated him yet the more. And he said unto them, Here I pray you this dream which I have dreamed. For behold, we were binding sheaves in the field, and lo, my sheaf arose, and also stood upright. And behold, your sheaves stood round about, and made obeisance to my sheaf. And his brethren said, said to him, Shalt thou indeed reign over us, or shalt thou indeed have dominion over us? And they hated him yet the more for his dreams and for his words. And he dreamed yet another dream. And told his brethren, and said, Behold, I have dreamed a dream more. And behold, the sun and the moon and the eleven stars made obeisance to me. And he told his father and to his brethren, and his father rebuked him and said unto him, What is this dream that thou hast dreamed? Shall I and thy mother and thy brethren indeed come to bow down ourselves to thee to the earth? And his brethren envied him, but his father observed the saying. God gave Joseph these two dreams. Remember when we talked about this? We talked about how God gave it to him just before all this happens. God prepares him for what's about to happen. God gives him this this wonderful word, this wonderful glimpse of his future. That one day he would be raised to a position of authority over his family. Joseph didn't know how that was going to happen. He didn't understand how God was going to make it take place. But Joseph believed the word of the Lord. And it was with the word of the Lord on his mind and in his heart that Joseph faced these trials in his life. You know, Joseph believed the truth of Romans 8.28. 
And we know that all things work together for good to them that love God, to them who are the called according to his purpose. It may not have been written yet, but Joseph believed that truth, didn't he? He believed that God was in control and that God was using this event for his glory. And that's why Joseph once more, as he finds himself in prison, what does he do? He responds exactly the same way he responded when he ended up in Potiphar's house. He submits to where he is and he faithfully serves God. And we read in verse 21 there, it says, But the Lord was with Joseph and showed him mercy and gave him favor in the sight of the keeper of the prison. And the keeper of the prison committed to Joseph's hand all the prisoners that were in the prison. And whatsoever they did there, he was the doer of it. The keeper of the prison looked not to anything that was under his hand because the Lord was with him and that which he did, the Lord made to prosper. Joseph once more realizes God's in control. He submits to where God has him and he faithfully serves the Lord. And it's not long before once again, the keeper of the prison, he, he notices a difference in Joseph's life and he elevates Joseph to being over the other prisoners, trusting him with the running of things. You see, God prospered his time even in prison. Why? Because Joseph sought the Lord and he submitted to God and he faithfully served the Lord. And so God prospered his time and Joseph once more was a witness, wasn't he? He was a witness to all those in the prison. You know, beloved, we must like Joseph remember that God is in control. Even when we suffer trials, when we suffer affliction, when we suffer persecution for righteousness' sake, God is in control. He knows. He knew that was coming. And he has a purpose. He has a plan. You know, James chapter 1 tells us to count it all joy. I know we know the verse, but let's just quickly turn there. James 1. <clears throat> James 1 verse 2 says, My brethren, count it all joy when you fall into divers temptations, knowing this, the trying of your faith worketh patience. James says, count it all joy. Why? Because these things are used by God to build up our faith. God has a purpose. God has a plan. There's, there's no mistakes with God. He is in control. Even though sometimes we can't see that control, God is in control. And therefore, no matter what situation we find ourselves to be in, let us respond in a Christ-like manner with a humble, meek submission to where God has placed us, knowing that God is on the throne, and knowing that God knows best. Let's close in a word of prayer. Dear Lord and Heavenly Father, we thank you once more for your word this morning. And Lord, in Joseph, we see this, this wonderful example, Lord, of a, a man who kept his eyes upon you throughout all these trials that he faced. Lord, as he stood up for righteousness, he suffered for righteousness' sake. He suffered as you suffered. And Lord, may you help us to, likewise, be willing to make that stand, to suffer for standing up for you, suffer for living a godly life. And Lord, when we do suffer, help us to realize you're in control, that you see our affliction, that you know best, and help us to humbly and meekly submit to where you have us and help us to faithfully serve where you've placed us. Lord, may you help us to never forget that, Lord, you are on the throne. You are in control. And we thank you for this day in Jesus' name. Amen.